Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, with me, Raymond Nakamura. And myself, Scott Owens, who has replaced Alexis Jensen as the collections manager. She's gone back to school at UBC, and we are wishing her all the best. We have some uh, big shoes to fill here. And today, we are speaking of big shoes, someone who filled very big <laughs> shoes was named Hide Hyodo, and we're going to be talking about her today. She is renowned for many things, but in particular being the supervisor of education in the internment camps during World War II. As well as the first employed teacher of Japanese-Canadian descent in the BC school system. Because there was another person, Terry Ikita, who was doing a kindergarten through yes, the yes. United Church. Because she had graduated from the train, teacher training program, yeah. but then wasn't able to get a job in a regular school either. But we'll, we'll get into this later. Hide Hyodo, later Shimizu, also received an Order of Canada for all of her work. So to begin with, I guess we can talk about when she was born. 1908. So, so she was a Nisei born to people from Japan, her parents, who came in 1905. At the time, they were living around Powell Street, so it would have been just a year after the anti-Asian riots on Powell Street, so probably a little bit anxious times for them to be starting a family around there. Later on, they ended up moving to South Vancouver, where her, her father had bought property. Eventually, Hideko or Hide ended up being the eldest of eight kids. They grew up in a neighborhood that had very few other Japanese in the area. She was the only Japanese kid that she knew of in her school, so they spoke English all the time. And they also didn't go to the Japanese school because it was downtown yeah. and too far for them to get to. In, a, in an interview that she had done, an oral history, she had mentioned that there was one other Japanese-Canadian family about two miles away from where she lived. And I think that where she lived in South Vancouver, it was around 51st Ave. So even though there weren't that many, it's interesting that she knew that there were any at all. Yes. Like, so if they, if they were around, they must have been yeah. been aware of them. They were aware of them, but apparently they didn't see them that often, yeah. is what was yeah. said. Yeah, right. They went to this school, or she went to this school. It was just a four-room school. She described the library as being one shelf of books. The nearest community library was about two miles away and cost two dollars to use, so that was prohibitive. But she did recall that they subscribed to or, or purchased the Books of Knowledge encyclopedias bought on installment, so, so that was important for her. She evidently had a voracious appetite for learning. Yeah, and uh, eventually she ended up going to John Oliver High School in South Vancouver, and at the time, South Vancouver was a working-class neighborhood, which actually meant that a lot of people didn't continue on to high school. But Hide, having enjoyed her studies, decided that she wanted to continue studying. And so after that, she actually continued on at uh, UBC at the time that it was in some vacant buildings in the Fairview neighborhood, which is around where the Vancouver General Hospital is. So she studied there for a year in 1924, but then being quite cognizant of the fact that it was better for, or that it was preferable that her brothers receive education, she decided to look for a job as a secretary in order to help out the family with their finances. But while she was looking for a job, she actually found a Vancouver Normal School program that had relatively low tuition fees. 
and decided that she would do the teacher training program there. Also, the thing about the UBC of them moving out to Point Grey, so that kind of precipitated that, that it was going to be further away, and And they were increasing their fees. Yeah, their fees, I think, doubled around that time, and so that made it kind of untenable, I guess, for for her and her family financially. It it seems kind of funny that it's called a normal school, but uh, (laughs) evidently this was a a normal thing, that it was part of this teacher training program specifically. There was another one in Victoria as well. And the system carried on until 1956 when teacher training moved to UBC. So she went to this school to become a teacher, or at least get teacher training. But it was still part of the Depression. And so she was scrambling to get other kinds of work. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when she, when she finished school at the Vancouver Normal School, she accepted a job at a Japanese firm after not being able to find a teaching position right away. And she ended up because she didn't really have a good command of the Japanese language, basically, because she hadn't grown up around other Japanese Canadian families. And so at this firm, she relied on a bookkeeper to translate for her because of the fact that she didn't have adequate Japanese to be in that environment. And shortly after she accepted this position, actually, she saw an ad for a position in Steveston that was offered outside of the normal time that they had offered positions. So normally the positions for teachers were filled in June, but this one was advertised in September. So she was kind of curious about it and she applied for it. They gave it to her, but unbeknownst to her, part of the reason that that she received the job was because Steveston at that time was a heavily Japanese speaking community at this particular school, which was the Lord Bing School. The teacher previous to her had quit because she had a class of 44, a grade one class of 44 students that mostly only spoke Japanese and spoke very little English. They had hired Hide under the assumption that she could speak Japanese, even though this was not the case. There was something about her being aware, though, of of Steveston and the challenges that would be there, because Steveston has a fishing community. There were so many Japanese there, so that even the kids who were born in Canada were basically living in a Japanese-speaking environment, and so yeah. that was their their first tongue. So when she went, there was that description of she said, "Good morning, boys and girls," and everybody said, "Good morning, boys and girls." They said <laughs> they, they were just copying the same thing. So yeah, that, she that thought was, that they were really uh, it was going to be a challenge. Yeah, and I think that this is kind of one of the interesting through lines too about people assuming that she can speak Japanese. It kind of seems to have uh, benefited her in a roundabout way because this is you know, part of the reason that she was the first Japanese Canadian teacher in BC was because they thought that she would be able to communicate with the peoples in Japanese. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) yeah, basically, they were restricted to that, because other people of Japanese Canadian descent were simply weren't being hired, period. So this was the only way that she could get in. Mm -hmm. And yet, ironically, she she didn't have the Japanese language facility, but she stuck it out. Yes. And I suppose that that in itself was a lesson that that prepared her for other experience. And it does seem that because education was important to the Japanese community, she became known within the community as being this pioneer in a sense of, of having that role. So related to that, there were these social functions she became involved with down around Powell Street based at the United Church there. When she was younger, her family had gone to a Japanese gospel church but she found it was all in Japanese, didn't necessarily agree with their, their tenets. So it wasn't until an English service opened up down on, at the United Church on Powell that she 
became interested in, they had these youth organizations that were forming. The United Church there is where the current Buddhist temple is now, near the Powell grounds or the Oppenheimer Park off Powell Street. So there were not really any other Nisei organizations at the time. Again, this thing about the, the Japanese language and the there was almost a schism within the community in that there were some Nisei who were mostly used to speaking in Japanese and then other ones like herself who were more comfortable in English. So she was hanging around with those ones, it seems. So in the 1930s, some of these Nisei, particularly ones who had been university educated, were keen to promote the franchise, the, the ability for them to get the vote. So the people of Japanese descent, even if they were born in Canada, as well as Chinese and natives and, and other groups, basically non-white groups, were not allowed to vote within BC. This in itself was bad enough, but it also had implications in that they were barred from various professions, including mm -hmm. being pharmacists and a few other occupations, explicit or, or not explicit, they weren't able to get into that. In 1936, she was asked to join a, a four-person delegation that was going to Ottawa. They were specifically looking for a woman yeah. as as, yeah. as being part of this committee, which is interesting. And before the franchise as well, she was involved with, because it was the Japanese-Canadian Citizens League mm -hmm. that was really responsible and almost set up around this delegation for, for the franchise for Japanese-Canadians. She was involved with that organization um, a little bit before the delegation as well, and so she was already kind of involved with the community in that capacity, and I'm sure that that helped. So the impetus for this seems to have come from, uh, at least in part, an MP named Angus McGuinness, who was from Vancouver and a representative co-founder of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, CCF, who later became the NDP. And they, they were trying to raise the franchise issue within the House of Commons, whereas the anti-Japanese contingent from BC were arguing that Japanese Canadians didn't care about it since they weren't mentioning it. So this raised the, the hackles, I guess, of the people who were concerned about the issue and, and the Japanese Canadian community started raising funds to make this. It's funny how um, Hide describes it as being run by men and back then. She just sort of is very matter of fact about it. She didn't know anything about what was going on that way and just went along with, with yeah. the scenario. The members of the delegation, there was Dr. Samuel Hayakawa, and you studied linguistics. Have you heard of, uh, he, he's sort of renowned in his linguistics work later on. But No, I actually haven't. S.I. Hayakawa, he was later a, a senator, I think, in California. But at the time, it's interesting because although he was a Nisei from New Westminster, uh, he was a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin. So evidently oh, yeah. they were pulling out all the stops to have people who were showing that they were not just these Japanese-speaking immigrants, that yeah. they, they were prosperous members of society in general it seemed crazy that they wouldn't have the franchise uh, so he was recruited and then there was a, a dr edward bunnell who was a dentist involved with the gakuseikai that's the university students that they might have known before and there is minoru kobayashi who was involved in insurance in steveston apparently she knew of him as well at the presentation they took the train out to Ottawa, so they had a lot of time to think about their strategy, I guess. Yeah. And evidently, Hayakawa had laid things out, their their plan of attack. And so Hidez went first and was describing previous efforts, including uh, that of Tomikichi Homa, yeah. who had tried to get the franchise back in 1900. 
unsuccessfully. So it's another one of these condescending comments about yeah. how impressed they are with her English. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Afterward, the, the press talking about that. One of the recounts that I had heard of it was that they had asked McGinnis if mm -hmm. they would need translators. Right. And right. he assured them that they would not need translators. And yeah. they were a little bit unsure about that. It shows how <laughs> profoundly ignorant they were of the Japanese Canadian community. Yeah. So all the information in the House of Commons was almost all of it was based on these strong anti-Japanese MPs from BC, particularly yeah. Tom Reed, who had apparently this strong Scottish accent. Yeah. And it seems that Hayakawa, it's unclear whether he did it intentionally or not, actually quoted Robbie Burns yeah, I heard about back that. to him at the end, and that caused quite an uproar. Yeah, he, uh, was, quite, he was quite furious at that, was what <laughs> I heard. He was, uh, what do you call it? He was, anyway, playing that back to him. So at the time, the prime minister was Mackenzie King. Of course, later he would also be the prime minister when everything went down during World War Two. Yeah, uh, he just seemed unimpressed by him. <laughs> she, she, she didn't have much to say about him. Whereas the opposition leader, R.B. Bennett, she found a more impressive person. Yeah. He had evidently just lost being prime minister. He had been prime minister prior and had just lost after having to deal with the depression and so forth. After all these efforts, unfortunately, they still didn't get the vote. So that was in 1936, then before Japanese were sent to camps outside of the exclusion zone, they were transferred to Hastings Park, which is part of the amusement park at the, uh, at the Pacific National, National Exhibition now. It was still back then as well, amusement park. He was responsible for coordinating the teachers as a whole, as well as for teaching Hastings Park grades one to three. And so then it would have been um, 1942. Hide had, um, she had been actually during that time going back and forth between teaching at Steveston and um, at Hastings Park. But as her class in Steveston, which was largely, almost exclusively actually Japanese Canadians, had dwindled, she decided to dedicate herself full time to teaching at Hastings Park, despite the fact that she could receive a salary until the end of June. She decided to leave much earlier than that because she didn't think there was much use. And she, I think in the interview, she said she'd get a couple dollars if she kept teaching there, but it didn't seem worth it since she didn't really have any pupils. And her, her dedication was amazing, though, even prior to that. I mean, going from Steveston, she had to take the interurban yeah. transit into Vancouver and then a streetcar over at Hastings yeah. Park. So that would have been a hectic yeah. time as well because they had this curfew that they couldn't be out after a certain yeah. uh, hour as well. Apparently, her, around May, her, her family had moved to Caslow. And in the meantime, they had rented out their home to mm -hmm. people from Alberta. So she was uh, renting a place down on Powell Street at the time. Yeah. So a lot of commuting in any case. So the school was set up in Hastings Park in the building, which is still called the Forum where they do circus acts and just, so it's sort of like an arena. And so although they had the groups divided up, it was still quite noisy. Mm -hmm. uh, during that time, they started acquiring equipment from the old Japanese schools that had been closed up and their equipment confiscated. And then that, that process continued on as they moved to the camps. So they started getting shipped out from about in the summer of 42, then people were in Hastings Park and then starting getting moved into internment camps in the interior. And some of them went to sugar beet farms, but her responsibility became 
to be supervising education in the camps. She did that for three years and she actually, she based herself in New Denver, partially because that's where the BC Securities Commission was based. In the first year, um, she was able to organize things and look for volunteers and they had organized like a short teacher training program for the volunteers. So they basically had a very, very short amount of time that they could kind of train these people so that they could try to get them started for the school year in in 1942 two weeks of training yeah uh for these people who were some of them just yeah. high school graduates yeah and had not taught before they were they were going to be dealing with a bunch of kids yeah in unfamiliar settings but at least they got some training. they did get some training in so they had so she was there for three for three years so for three school years they had actually in this the years following that, like after the first school year had ended, they had kind of a more comprehensive summer school for the teachers. It was quite a bit longer. I think it was for two or two or three months in the summer in between school years that allowed them to kind of better prepare them. Hide was actually able to get supplies through the office of the custodian of enemy alien property in Vancouver. So actually a lot of the supplies came from buildings that they had seized at the Japanese places like the Japanese language school. And so Hide was able to kind of like use those resources so that there were places for students to go. And it seemed <laughs> that in, in Tashmi, the site that was set up near Hope and further away from New Denver had more people who were primarily Japanese speakers as well yeah. as the, the principal and so Hide herself wasn't so fluent in Japanese so it was more difficult to deal with those that group so some of the challenges aside from the the staffing they had to have the facility set up and yeah. and that would be a, a difficult enough thing as it is there, there are hundreds of teachers yeah. she's supervising making sure that they're they're following the curriculum they're using correspondence yeah. um, materials from the government and the BC government itself there was that controversy because they didn't want to cover any education and then the federal was stepping in and, and there were these machinations that were going on so that would have been complicated in any case but the situation kept changing and people started being able to move around or the mm -hmm. government's decisions or, and the, yeah. the progress of the war I guess progress isn't the word for it but the, the as changes happened she had to be constantly on top of things so it seems like a mind-blowing responsibility that yeah. she's dealing with. There, there's a whole book that, that outlines some of these issues related to ghost town teaching that she was involved in, in making happen, although she passed away before it was published. We can yeah. talk about more of that later, but we'll, I guess we can move on to when she moved out to Toronto. Yeah, so actually she went to, after she left New Denver, she actually went to Nays for a couple of years. There was a camp in Nays, Ontario, where they continued to do education and things like that until until 1948. Hide had left, and she wasn't there until 1948, but she did some teaching organization around the Nays camp. After that, she decided to move to Toronto. So the restrictions on Japanese Canadians at the time in Toronto, partially was a result of public pressure was that Nisei and Issei were required to obtain residence permits in order to settle in Toronto and these were very sparingly granted. In in an interview actually uh, Hide refers to this as kind of like an effective ban on Japanese Canadians in Toronto but she was able to justify her case based on the fact that she wanted to go to art college in Ontario and she was wanted to go to Toronto because she said, well, there were no art colleges in British Columbia. They let her in basically on that basis. It did seem like the, the explicit ban 
to Toronto by 1945 had been lifted. It was, it yeah. was early, like around 1943, it, where people had trouble getting in. But the sources that I found differ as to whether it was a ban or whether or not there were resident permits granted. Because I've kind of, I've, oh yeah, I, I got some kind of like conflict, conflicting information on. Yeah, whether or I not guess it there's was. the explicit versus the the actual behavior. Yeah. She did end up completing art school, but she didn't end up doing really jobs that were as related to art school. She After that, she kind of ended up getting some odd jobs, and she had looked actually at moving outside of Toronto, but decided against it, and she ended up working at a factory for a while, and then the factory closed down due to a recession. She, she then, mentioned sort of offhand that her nerves were bad, which yeah. is understandable after dealing with the school, the huge yeah. issue of the school. And although she didn't go on about that, it, I can imagine that being, I mean, just the, the yeah. recovery, the psychological recovery of that. And, yeah. I mean, for everyone, but her in particular, the, the weight of responsibility yeah. that she had had for three years must have been... Um, quite a bit to deal with yeah and that may have spurred her decision to kind of like try something different than teaching for a while she also ended up she worked as a seamstress quite a bit she was working with sewing lampshades and then somewhere where they had produced clothing and it was interesting how how in that discussion she seems very pragmatic about what would be feasible yeah and even even the art college thing wasn't so much for art in its own sake it seemed yeah. like she had this idea that she she had the sense that that Issei Japanese Canadians would be good with their hands. Yeah. So if she could train other people to do art to produce crafts, that could be a way of providing income, like this whole yeah. industry. But then when she saw how prevalent or how available those kinds of materials already were, it yeah. seems like she she figured it wasn't really worth trying to start yeah. up a, a new project. But it was just interesting how she was sort of always thinking of, of these larger solutions the decisions were based on very pragmatic uh so shortly after that time she she actually gets married to reverend shimizu who is a widower and it's funny in the discussion she says almost nothing about be, <laughs> being married other than it kind of threw off her plan like to, to go like she, yeah because she wanted to go back to teaching but then she got married yeah and so she couldn't go back to teaching right yeah away. yeah so it's kind of funny uh, well, as a, I guess a reverend's wife, who was very busy being involved with the United mm -hmm. Church, and she had been aware of, of the United Church before, was involved with it previously in Vancouver. So that seemed to swallow up her time and her efforts being mm -hmm. involved in that way. But after he passed away, then she had to move out and got involved with originally a, a married couples group, and which then morphed into a, mostly a women's group, the Toronto yeah. say Women's Club. Again, this idea of, of applying things to a larger cause, they got involved in, in fundraising through mm -hmm. dances and, and things along those lines. Just talking with uh, or, or hearing her talk, it seems like she's very energetic. Like, yeah. She must have been in her 70s, I guess, when yeah. that interview took place. Yeah, it was 1976 that, that a lot of the material that we've referenced in the interview, it, w it occurred in 1976. Yeah, she always seems to be thinking of how to make things work. And, and one of those in that interview seems to be this issue of how to record what happened in the camps, especially with regard to the schools. Yeah. And so she's just thinking off the top of her head, oh, we should have a reunion, we should have these stories recorded because... She had spoken with uh, Mrs. Booth, who had been the supervisor of the, the camps that she had to report to, who had told her that most of the archives had all been destroyed. And so she was crestfallen about that when she went to Ottawa looking for records of, of what mm -hmm. had happened. So she felt that the next best thing would be getting people's memoirs written down. Mm -hmm. 
Although there, they did later find some materials, this led to them forming a, a group that was developing that. So in Toronto, they were meeting. The, the interview thing was happening in 1976, a year before the centennial in, in 77, when a yeah. lot of activities were happening. But it seems like they didn't get around to having the, the ghost town teachers reunion until 1987 which is close to when the redress happened in, in, in 88. But so it was, this society was set up with her as the founding president and they recruited Frank Moritsugu who helped with coaching on the writing and helping them collect the materials. There was the homecoming conference, the uh, 50 year anniversary in 1992 of, of the, the internment when they presented some of their work. She passed away in 1999 and the book didn't come out until 2001, but it's obviously dedicated to her yeah. memory and, and her influence is acknowledged throughout. Yes. But it's, it's really a, a fascinating book because it, it gets into the, so many memories yeah. of what happened in those schools and, yeah. and the lives that were taking place. And I, I think it's a really nice book, too, because it really is a lot of this is what was going on, but kind of this is how I was feeling about this. And there's a lot more kind of, I guess, first person perspective that's in the book that's, I think, really interesting. Mm hmm. Now it's always complicated the idea of memory and versus history yeah. and, and all of, especially so many years after yeah. it happened it's certainly worth looking at to understand what the experience was like during those times. Anything else to add on this? No, she, I... she is she is I think certainly a role model or or you know a major figure in in Japanese Canadian history. Yeah. So, we'll leave it at that. Yep. All right. Yay, our first podcast with Scott. And we look forward to many more. I'm sure that it will only get better. <laughs> <laughs>